1: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more
2: each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today will be the home stretch of this New Year series, 2024, The Bible. What is it good for? With Part 9. If you missed any prior sessions, just access the podcasts at faithtalk1360.com, spotify.com, or Apple Podcasts. And at the end of our program, I'll give more details on these options. Last time in Part 8, The Greatest Story Ever Told, we furthered our look at this one-volume library we so easily clasp in our hands and how this Bible just continues to astound us plus how it confirms over and over that human history is saturated with the will and workings of a divine mind, the divine mind of the Judeo-Christian God of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, as well as our New Testament Scriptures. We saw how the author of Hebrews, in just the opening few verses, literally with the sweep of a pen, covers centuries of divinely guided human history that for his first century audience culminated in the birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Then we singled out Saul, a dyed-in-the-wool Pharisee, a despiser of the budding church movement, an accomplice to those who chased down, imprisoned, and even executed believers in the Messiah Jesus. Yet he mysteriously flip-flops and has a complete turnaround and then begins preaching the very message he furiously and violently opposed for so long. We soon find him referring to himself as the Apostle Paul, writing a letter to believers in Messiah Jesus in the city of Corinth. In this letter, he demonstrates the significance of his own historical religious Jewish writings, realizing that his own Hebrew God, Yahweh, has acted in history and predicted the coming Messiah for centuries. Listen to his words that open 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than five hundred, then to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, me. We discovered that both Old and New Testaments testify over and over that human history is not mere history, but that our Bible, the Book of Books as I call it, records both israelite history and christian history under the umbrella of the mighty acts of god this helps us understand the spiritual dimension of human history and is such under the guidance and inspiration of the holy spirit these bible writers these theological historians as i call them portray history in such a way that through history we receive a unique spiritual message We Christ followers in our generation must understand and grab hold of the reality that biblical history records history with a purpose, history with a goal, a divine goal, in fact. Well, friends, today in Part 9, The Bible Maze, KJV, NIV, or NLT, anyone? will come face-to-face with a book that's occasionally been nicknamed a love letter from God. So I'd like to elaborate on this by sharing a true story that occurred in the early 1980s when the New York Times ran an ad advertising a book by Mortimer Adler called How to Read a Book. The ad actually had a catchy title, How to Read a Love Letter. The body of the letter went like this. This young man has just received his first love letter. He may have read it three or four times, but he's really just beginning. To read it as he would like would require several dictionaries and a good deal of close work with a few experts in etymology and philology, etymology being the study of word origins and philology the study of word meanings. However, he'll do all right with them now. He'll ponder over exact shades of meaning of every word, every comma. She's headed the letter, dear John. What, he asks, is the exact significance of those words. Did she refrain from saying dearest because she was bashful? Would my dear have sounded too formal? Jeepers, maybe she would have said dear so-and-so to anybody. A worried frown now appears on his face, but it disappears as soon as he really gets to thinking about that first sentence. She certainly would not have written that to just anyone. And so he works his way through her letter, one moment perched blissfully on a cloud, the next moment huddled miserably behind an eight-ball. It has ignited a hundred questions in his mind. He could quote the letter by heart. In fact, he will, to himself for weeks to come." (laughs) Friends, what if we took that nickname I mentioned earlier to heart? You know, the Bible is a love letter from God. Would we then read it like that young man did in that ad? Pondering over the exact shades of meaning of every word, every comma, perhaps asking ourselves from time to time— What is the exact significance of those words? Maybe even consult several Bible dictionaries or word-meaning resources that would help us understand the words, culture, and customs better. And maybe as we work our way through this love letter, we'll find ourselves one moment perched blissfully on a cloud because of the promises written on its pages, the next moment huddled miserably behind an eight ball because the words of this love letter are God's words living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword piercing our soul and spirit judging the thoughts and intentions of our hearts friends maybe this love letter sparks a hundred questions in our minds but we can quote it by heart in fact we will to ourselves for weeks to come Now, does this sound too much like a pie-in-the-sky encounter with this love letter from God? This Bible, as we call it, it shouldn't, friends. If we have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, it's only natural we'll be drawn to his letter, time and time again, pondering every word. Remember the Living Bible? Its sole translator, Ken Taylor, began his translation work starting with the New Testament letters, calling them Living Letters. The outcome of his labors became the Living Bible. Appropriate name, huh? After all, according to Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. Friends, perhaps you already know this, but the United States Post Office has a dead letter file. Unfortunately for some of us, we have a Bible sitting on our coffee table or on a shelf somewhere, and that table or shelf is now a dead letter file. This reminded me of Jesus' words in John 6:63, 6, The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Friends, the Bible is not a dead letter, is it? It's the living and abiding word of God, per 1 Peter 1, well, today I'd like us to accompany two Christ followers along a road. They were traveling one day, minding their own business, and it just so happened they had an encounter with the word of God they would never forget. While I'll be highlighting several passages in Luke 24:13 through 48, please read this entire portion. Again, that's Luke 24 13 through 48. It's very illuminating, so let's put on our detective's cap and observe some divine truths, which in some cases are actually found between the lines. But friends, let's first note that as Luke chapter 23 ends and 24 begins, we find the crucifixion, burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus recorded. And in the midst of Luke's resurrection report, he makes us privy to an encounter two disciples had. That the other gospel writers don't have this account has been dubbed the emmaus road encounter so let's begin at verse 13 now that same day meaning resurrection day two of them disciples were going to a village called emmaus about seven miles from jerusalem Luke then goes on to say that they were chatting about what had gone on that weekend, most likely the crucifixion and burial of their Messiah, Jesus. Even though it was Sunday, the reality and significance of Jesus' resurrection had not sunk in yet. And as they walked and talked, suddenly Jesus appears and walks alongside them, but he prevents them from recognizing him. He then asks them what they're discussing. Now, friends, here Luke records an extremely significant reaction in verse 17. They stood still, their faces downcast. Now, friends, this is a time we absolutely need to investigate the original meaning of a word. Downcast or sad in our English translations is a very expressive word. Carries with it the meanings of gloomy. Gloomy grim-faced, sullen, even mournful and sulky, or pouting. Friends, this is a first-century equivalent to our modern word, depressed. Well, these two disciples elaborate on the things that have happened since Friday, and that these events centered around a Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, powerful in word and deed, yet their religious leaders handed him over to be executed by crucifixion. Now listen carefully, friends. I'm going to read verse 21 with the emotion I believe these two had. But we had hope that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you hear that, friends? Were you able to read between the lines here? Were you able to properly interpret the word redeem? By the expression redeem Israel, these two disciples meant Return Israel to its rightful place on top and diminish Rome's power over Jews. Return Israel's power to her so she can rule over the empire. Now, How do I know this? Well, Acts chapter 1 clues us in. The pertinent verse is verse 6. After Jesus instructs the disciples for 40 days about the kingdom of God, they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, the physical earthly kingdom. And this is validated by a little-known tucked-in statement by Luke in Luke 19.11. While they were listening to this, Jesus' teachings, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Interestingly, isn't it, friends, this public sentiment gradually revealed that people thought Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to establish the promised earthly kingdom then and there. Friends, the context of Jesus' statement there in Luke 19 is his teaching that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we see that these and other statements by Jesus and the New Testament writers make it clear that from its inception... Christianity has always been a missionary faith. In fact, earliest translations of the New Testament were prepared by missionaries, we call them apostles, to assist in the propagation of the Judeo-Christian faith among such people groups whose native languages were Syriac, Latin and Coptic, an Egyptian dialect, Do we realize that the first English Bible didn't appear on the scene until 1382? It was translated from the Latin by John Wycliffe, who wanted the common English-speaking people to have the Bible. In 1525, Oxford scholar and priest William Tyndale translated the New Testament from the original Greek, but he couldn't get approval to publish it in England, so he moved to Germany and had it printed there. He then smuggled these back into England in sacks of corn and flour. Ten years later, Tyndale published part of the Old Testament in English, translated directly from the original Hebrew. But in 1536, Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake. His famous last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Well, let's pause here a moment, friends. You're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners, and a word from the word is listener funded. Your financial partnership is vital to keep this program broadcasting, which also disciples Christians without a church home and you who may have been hurt by the institutional church, please join forces with me in a word from the word. Email me for the details on how to support this program at a word from the word at minister dot com Friends were living in challenging financial times, and ministries are not immune. A word from the word is still seeking to become fully funded and supporters are greatly needed. We'll repeat this info at the end of today's program. Now, friends, although John Wycliffe was the first to translate the Bible into English, William Tyndale is still viewed as the father of the English Bible because his translation formed the basis for the King James Version printed in 1611. So it's important for us modern-day Christ followers to know that between Wycliffe's translation and the authorized King James Version of 1611, there were several accepted and widely used English Bibles. The Miles Coverdale Bible of 1535. It was first completed, Old and New Testament. Coverdale, a friend of Tyndale, finished his Old Testament and revised his New Testament. The Matthews Bible of 1537, actually translated by John Rogers, who took the pen name Thomas Matthew because he was also a friend of Tyndale, but thought his translation would be more accepted by the authorities if his relationship to Tyndale wasn't known. Rogers was burned to death in 1555 during the reign of Bloody Mary. This was Mary I, queen and daughter of Henry VIII. Then there was the Great Bible, 1539. It was named for its size and was a version authorized by Henry VIII because the notes and preface of the Tyndale and Coverdale Bibles were so controversial they aroused arguments. The Great Bible was the first official English Bible appointed to be read in all the churches. And by the way, the 1611 King James Version was basically a revision of the Great Bible. The Geneva Bible, 1557. This was named because it was translated and put together by John Calvin's brother-in-law, William Whittingham, in Geneva, Switzerland, during the vicious Protestant persecution under Bloody Mary, Queen Mary I. And by the way, the Geneva Bible's significance was due to the fact that it was the first Bible to have verse divisions. It was the most loved Bible by the common people up to that time and went through more than 160 editions it was also the bible of shakespeare and john bunyan and it was the bible the pilgrims brought with them on the mayflower to america in 1620 then there's the bishop's bible of 1568 this bible was published under the auspices of queen elizabeth because the church of england did not like the notes in the geneva bible they undermined the authority of the bishops and the already authorized great bible Then finally, the King James Version, 1611. King James I wanted a Bible version that no parties involved had an axe to grind. It was a national undertaking in which no one had any interest at heart, except that of producing the best possible version of the Scriptures. And by the way, the King James went through several revisions. The edition we have today is the revision of 1769. The King James generally carries the reputation of being a monument to dignity and reverence. It's beloved by so many people, yet it's not widely known that it had its own turbulent acceptance period... 40 years before it won out over the Geneva Bible. Before the King James was distributed, it was criticized, many questioning the need for it. The Roman Catholics claimed it favored Protestantism. The Arminians balked because they felt it leaned toward Calvinism. The Puritans disliked certain word choices like bishop, ordain, and easter. They refused to bring it on board the Mayflower, preferring the Geneva Bible of 1563. 1560, I'm sorry. The King James wasn't the only Bible that stirred up deep emotions of resentment. In 1952, when Revised Standard Version, a revision of the King James, was published, some ministers publicly burned some of its pages. It was actually said by some, We have made at least some progress since the Middle Ages. Nowadays we burn only the translation. In the old days they burned the translator. The Good News Translation, a modern language Bible that first appeared in 1966 in the New Testament called Good News for Modern Man, is further proof that people are slow to change. Some felt alterations to the Bible as they had learned it was equal to heresy. Reactions ran the gamut from, This can't be the Bible. I can understand it. To, This Bible is a masterpiece of Satan. In 1962, Ken Taylor, who single-handedly authored The Living Bible, was turned away by four publishers. Finally, on credit, he had a limited supply of 2,000 copies privately printed. The legacy of The Living Bible stands as having sold over 40 million copies and due to its long-standing popularity, a body of respected world-class evangelical scholars devoted eight years to updating the Living Bible, which was a paraphrase, and converted it to a legitimate translation. The result was the 1996 New Living Translation. Friends, we could easily take a back seat and remain uninterested in the translation history of our own English Bibles, and in my opinion, we do this to our own detriment. You see, it's the lack of understanding Understanding of the translation process and challenges faced by translators that has given rise to needless debates and controversies, and the necessity for people to spend time and energy spilling tons of ink writing condescending books. Friends, did you know that there are some 900 English translations of the Bible? I'm pretty sure there were times when bookstores were still around that you went shopping for a simple Bible and ended up shaking your head in confusion with all the various Bible translations out there. But we're really fortunate to have so many English translations of the Word of God. And I'm not including cult translations or aberrant versions, but legitimate, committee-driven, scholarly translations. And because of this variety of good translations, we have Bibles tailored to various reading comprehension levels, from children to adults. The same missionary zeal and burden for souls that led the early lovers of God's word to risk their lives so common people could read the Bible for themselves, I believe drives our modern Bible societies. You know, friends, I actually feel bad that I have to include today's session in this New Year series because at one time or another we'll all come face-to-face with Christians whose mission in life is to hawk their favorite translation and disparage others. Language is constantly changing and evolving. Words evolve in their meanings and usages. Remember I Love Lucy or the Honeymooners? Just watch some of their reruns and hear the word gay, and you'll see how words have evolved in meaning. In addition, language experts are always learning more about the biblical languages through archaeology and ancient Near Eastern documents that are unearthed that give us insights into customs and uses of words in their original cultural setting. Dr. Eugene A. Nilda, American Bible Society scholar and translator, whose groundbreaking work in dynamic equivalent translations virtually revolutionized the translation process, said... People do not realize that what is really changing is their own language and that in order to preserve the meaning of the original message, the form of language must be altered from time to time so as to adjust the content of the message to the constantly changing form of expression. Friends, the bottom line here is that we don't lose the zeal and drive for the word of God that our ancestors who brought our English Bibles had. Believe it or not, this is why I chose Luke 24 today. Just listen to verse 32, after Jesus departed for the two on the road to Emmaus. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Someone once remarked, the Bible is the only book that when you sit down to read it, the author is personally present. Woodrow Wilson, 28th President of the United States, and one time head of Princeton University, said, The Bible is the word of life. I beg that you'll read it and find out for yourself. Read not little snatches here and there, but long passages that will readily be the road to the heart of it. You'll find it full of things you've wondered about and been troubled about all your life. When you have read the Bible, you'll know it's the word of God, because you'll have found it the key to your own heart, your own own happiness and your own duty. Can you say amen to that? I sure can. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're nearing the end of our program. I hope it's been inspiring and challenging. In this series, I'll continue bringing evidence and sharing multiple ways we can defend our Christian belief system and our own sacred book, the Bible. Please share these programs with family members or friends who may be helped by these teachings on the uniqueness of the Bible or by those who might be skeptical or critical about the Bible's truthfulness. As promised, we'll close our broadcast with an email where you may write me and share your feedback on this series or any other teachings in A Word from the Word. Friends, I love coming alongside those, those, those of you who may be without a church home, or those of you who may have been hurt or wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are accessible at either faithtalk1360.com, just search the menu for local program podcasts, or spotify.com. Here, simply search for A Word from the Word with Pastor Tom. You may also access A Word from the Word on Apple Podcasts, and thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, A Word from the Word airs in all 50 states and in over 70 countries. If these teachings are inspiring you to grow and study God's Word more conscientiously, why not come alongside us and invest in the mission of A Word from the Word, which includes sharing the gospel, discipling those of you without a church home, and you who may have been hurt by the incident? Institutional Church. Friends, please make either a one time contribution or become a monthly partner this month. It will help us move ahead in the black. Well, thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom
1: know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the Word. At minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.